Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets. In this walk, Labouring City, we're exploring the East End of London, where much of the real work of the city was done, and which provided a home for the generations of immigrants who have given the city its dynamism. More recently, it's been a target for gentrifiers and developers. None of them have been entirely welcome. And you can still see the fault lines even close to the old city wall, where we'll be walking and where the transformation is almost complete. As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. And don't be surprised if you sometimes find your way blocked. Cities are always changing and building never stops. But it should be easy enough to find your way around the obstruction and get back on track. In this third and final episode, we'll see how the residents of the East End pushed out of other parts of the city, of their communities in the countryside, of their countries of origin, have tried to make themselves a home in the last century or so. We'll also see some of the housing that's been provided for them, But of course, those two things aren't always the same. A house is not always a home. We'll also see how both have been subjected to the market in recent years. We're starting the story in front of Christchurch Spitalfields back in the early 18th century, when the East End was beginning to get built up. You can find it a few minutes' walk east of Liverpool Street Station. We'll meet you there. So here we are at Christchurch Spitalfields. We're in the courtyard in front of the church. We're looking up at this incredible spire, this immense portico, big pillars. Behind us, we've got Spitalfields Market. Behind that, we've got the towers of the city. There's a churchyard to our right. In the first episode of this walk, we saw how the East End gradually grew out of the city, starting down by the river, slowly spreading north. As trade expanded, as industry took off, and as the market drove the cost of labour and the value of property down. In the second, we saw the transformation this produced in Whitechapel and Spitalfields, from early modern prosperity and gentility to 19th century poverty, crowding and crime, from weaving silk for good money to sweating labour for a few pennies. Here, too, we have a useful reminder of the tension that runs through the East End between the residents pushed and pulled here to find a place to live and to work and those with more power and wealth who see them as a problem and who sometimes try to intervene. Our story in this episode starts back in the early 18th century. In Spitalfields, the fields of what had once been a hospital, they start getting built on it in the 17th century, We heard this at the end of our last episode. Then, in 1685 and the years thereafter, a new wave of immigrants, French Protestants, bringing their skills, but also an unusual version of the Protestant faith. So the establishment is concerned. We're just recovering from our own war of religion. Parliament passes the Act. It finances 50 new churches to convince the newcomers to worship the right thing. Only 12 are built. 
and this is one. It's one of six that remain by Nicholas Hawksmoor. We've met him before in previous walks. We've seen two of them. We've seen Mary Woolnoth in the middle of the city. We saw George in the East bombed out, reconstructed in the first episode of this walk. Christchurch Spitalfields in front of us now is also witness to the speck given by the commissioners at the time. Churches, they said in the act, should have an island site, an impressive exterior, and an imposing entrance. This is the definition of an imposing entrance. These combine to form what they called, quote, a solemn and awful appearance. If we look up at the spire, we see this. Walk to the left a little bit and look up at the spire. We see that the spire is, in fact, wider than it is long. It's not, in fact, a square. It's designed to impose itself on the neighbourhood. Christchurch Spitalfields, though, is also evidence of how hard it is to get people to conform. If you go up the stairs and into the vestibule before the church proper, you'll see numerous monuments to people who contributed to later efforts to convert people to the one true faith. To the memory of Miss Jane Cook, who died at Cheltenham February 11, 1851, aged 75 years, Blessed by divine providence with a large and increasing estate, contented with the retirement of private life, and unambitious of worldly splendour, she devoted much of her property from year to year in her life and bequeathed the residue at her death to the promotion of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as the power of God unto salvation, unto the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Earnestly seeking the welfare of the church at home, and desirous of spreading the knowledge of salvation throughout the world, she preferred Jerusalem above her chief joy. Having in her lifetime contributed mainly to the building of a house for the Lord of Mount Zion and the permanent support of Christian establishments in the holy city of Jerusalem, she finally left a large fund to be applied to the general purposes of the London Society for the Promotion of Christianity Amongst the Jews. That society, the Society for the Promotion of Christianity Among the Jews, begins here in the East End. It spreads across Europe, across Palestine, across South America, across Africa. It thrives for over a century and then begins a long decline. Finally, in 1992, the Archbishop of Canterbury declines to be a patron of converting Jews to Christianity. Because by that time, the Church of England, of course, at least at home here in England, is in crisis. In 1970, more or less 50% of the population in England went to church. By the mid-80s, there were only 1.26 million active members. Now there are only 722,000. Only 12% of us identify as C of E. 940 churches have closed in the last 30 years. Not this one, though it was a close-run thing. Christchurch Spitalfields was derelict by 1960. Fundraising started soon after Spitalfields itself became an object of concern in 1976. I remember coming to a very atmospheric concert here in the early 1980s with scaffolding and peeling walls. It was a good backdrop for the music. Services came back in 1987 and the restoration was complete. It provides an architectural icon for the secularly minded. Many architecture friends think this is the greatest building in London. It also has provided soil for a new church plant, maybe a new round of empire building, trying to get people back into the pews. On the ground in the East End, though, the established church has always had competition. Those who come here already have their own practices of faith and belonging, which becomes clear if we walk just a few yards down the street. 
go to the left of the church. We're walking down Fournier Street and we're going to stop at the end. So we're walking down Fournier Street now. We've got the church on our right. Originally, of course, this is open fields. It's tenter grounds. It's where you hang out textiles to dry after they've been dyed. There are market gardens here. And then, as in the previous episode of this walk, we get the story of the 18th century. The early 18th century plots, at least, these houses are built. One century later, conditions are deteriorating, labor's getting packed in. The weaving lofts are added up top to provide light so that people can work. Come the 1970s, though, the preservationists get to work. The houses are saved, they're repaired, and then by the 90s, you have pretty much what you see today. What had been ground floor shops, pretty run down, were replaced by these shuttered windows, replica doorways, not originals, creating what somebody has called the illusory sense of quiet domestic existence and continuing prosperity from the time of building. Old photos, though, tell a different story. So here we are at the end of Fournier Street at the corner of Brick Lane. We're right next to the minaret of the mosque on this corner. It's a good spot to begin seeing things not from the perspective of those in authority, but in terms of the everyday lives of those who have made their home here. Christchurch, back at the other end of the street, presents an imposing facade. Fournier Street now is an expensive stage for people who love the 18th century to live their lives for those with money. But Brick Lane suggests that there are more interesting stories to tell about what's happened more recently. Let's start with this building on the corner, what an architectural historian has called large, plain and unadorned, but sound and solid. Now it's renowned as an icon of the way this small corner of London reveals the history of immigration we've been tracing in these walks. In 1743, when it first starts up, it's a Huguenot chapel for the French Protestants. At the beginning of the 19th century, it becomes a Wesleyan chapel, then a base for the Society for Propagating Christianity Among the Jews, and then a Methodist chapel in 1819. At the end of the century, though, with the new waves of East European Jewish immigration, it becomes the Spitalfields Great Synagogue. And finally, more or less a century later, in 1976, it becomes what it now is, Jama Masjid, a mosque. We've seen this transition before from Christianity through Judaism to Muslim practice and faith. In other words, real life in the East End is not about the heavenly vision of those on high, but about the way the streets and the buildings have been used by and adopted to the life and work of those who have lived here. It's clear from Brick Lane, the street in front of us. Brick and tile manufacture started in this area back in the 16th century using the local brick earth, earth that was suitable to make bricks with. 
building on the street starts in the 17th century from the south end back on Whitechapel Road where we were in the last episode of this walk. Later in the 17th century, you begin to get a market, you begin to get brewing. It includes the Truman Brewery. If we glance to our left up Brick Lane, you can see a bridge across the lane with the word Truman on it. The end of beer duty a little bit later in 1830 gets the brewery expanding and soon enough it's the largest in the world. It spreads over six acres. It's producing 400,000 barrels of beer a year. We'll see it later in this episode. Still, though, when the brewery starts up back in the 17th century, the area around it is mainly fields. It's immigration that changes things. Huguenots in the 17th and 18th century, Jews in the 19th and 20th century. They were allowed by special dispensation to trade on Sundays. Brick Lane today, though, presents at least a couple of different faces. The first is Bangladeshi, largely from the Silhet region. Already in the 1950s and 60s, men from this region had arrived to work in post-war England, largely in the garment industry. Then in 1971 comes the Liberation War, the Liberation War of East Pakistan against West Pakistan to become Bangladesh, which we talked about in the previous episode of this walk. Also, at the same time, we have very restrictive immigration laws passed in England, and so people start bringing their family members over. By 2002, 37% out of the 123,000 living in Tower Hamlets are from Bangladesh. Even before then, though, with the collapse of the garment industry, there is the takeoff of the restaurant business. In 1946, there were 20 restaurants or cafes in the whole of the UK owned by Bengalis. By 1960, there are 300. By 1980, there are more than 3,000. Then, at the beginning of the 21st century, in 2002, over 7,000 out of the 8,500 Indian restaurants in the UK are Bengali owned. That created one famous aspect of Brick Lane as we see it today. It led to a new identity for the neighbourhood. It became known as Bangla Town in the 1980s, but it also led to tensions. In 1978, there were race riots. In 1993, there were more racial attacks. The transformation of the neighbourhood was never easy. So even if we focus only on the Bangladeshi history of Brick Lane, it's a mixed picture that was caught famously by Monica Ali in her novel, Brick Lane, published in 2003 at the end of this period. On the one hand, there's Brick Lane itself, catering largely to white consumers in search of South Asian authenticity. The bright green and red pendants that fluttered from the lamppost advertised the Bangla colours and basmati rice. In the restaurant windows were clippings from newspapers and magazines with the name of the restaurant highlighted in yellow or pink. There were smart places with starched white tablecloths and multitudes of shining silver cutlery. In these places, the newspaper clippings were framed. The tables were far apart and there was an absence of decoration that Nazneen knew to be a style. In the other restaurants, the greeters and waiters wore white, oil-marked shirts. But in the smart ones, they wore black. A very large potted fern, or a blue and white mosaic at the entrance, indicated ultra-smart. In between the Bangladeshi restaurants were little shops that sold clothes and bags and trinkets. Their customers were young men in sawn-off trousers and sandals, and girls in t-shirts that strained across their chests and exposed their belly buttons. 
On the other, there are the estates and streets on which the Bangladeshi community live and often work between here and the river. Through an open door down a flight of concrete stairs, she glimpsed a row of sewing machines beneath a low yellow ceiling. A woman stood up to stretch and touched the ceiling with her palms. Nazneen pressed on. She turned into the Burners estate. Here, every type of cheap hope for cheap housing lived side by side in a monument to false economy. The low-rises crouched like wounded monsters along concrete banks. In the gullies, beach hut fabrications clung anxiously to the hard terrain, weathered and beaten by unknown storms. A desolate building, gouged out eyes in place of windows, announced Tenants' Association Hall for Hire. Nazneen looked up to the balconies. A woman in a dark blue burqa hung a prayer mat over the railing and withdrew. A small child trundled a red plastic truck along a balcony and back over and over again. At the end, near the sick orange light of a lamppost, two black children sat behind bars, watching their new world. Where had they come from? What had they escaped? By the time Monica Ali is writing, though, things have already moved on. She's capturing a story from the past, if you like. There are new immigrants in and around Brick Lane. This time, they're Somali. Again, it follows civil war. In the 80s and 90s, the numbers peak early in the 21st century. The community is more scattered. But a story without the Somali immigrants is a story missing an important piece. In the last 20 years, on Brick Lane, there has been regeneration. The brewery closed in 1989. It became a studio, an exhibition, a retail space. There is art, there are fashion, there are nightclubs. Brick Lane today has become a very different thing. If we turn left, we'd see this. We'd see the way in which the street and the brewery has been transformed in recent years to cater to the needs of the young creatives and the other professionals who live and work here. We'll pick up that story in a little while. Instead, though, we're turning right. We'll walk a little bit down Brick Lane towards Whitechapel Road, and then we're going to turn left. We're going to be walking through streets named after the original aristocratic landowner of this area. We're going to understand how recent developments have occupied and erased the history of those who were here earlier. We're going to be walking east. So let's turn right, walk a little bit further down Brick Lane, and then turn left on Heneage Street. So we're just walking a little bit down Brick Lane. On our right, we've got Christchurch Primary School. Earlier, there were charity schools, then parochial schools. This is from the 1870s. Now we're turning left on Heneage Street, a quite narrow opening to this street. On our right, almost immediately, we've got number two. It was a synagogue. There's also a pub on our left, the Pride of Spitalfields, quite modern frontage, but there was a brewery behind this. And as we make our way down Heneage Street, we're beginning to see more modern houses on the front, but entries into courtyards behind with industrial buildings. It's still a quite typical mix of housing, industrial development, but now including offices. And as we pass down the street on our right, we'll see a sunken combination basketball and soccer pitch. Most of the time when I pass through here, people are playing cricket instead. You see, I wasn't wrong. 
As we come to the end of Henniard Street, just past the basketball court, come football pitch, we're turning right, and we're just going to stop at this corner here as we head onto Chicksand Street. So here on the corner of Spelman Street and Chicksand Street, we're beginning to get the story of housing. Housing that was provided for the East End over the years, but housing provided in very different ways at different times. We're looking at a series of red brick, quite tall buildings. They seem paired, they are paired. These were tenements that were built in 1901. They're quite rare in London. There weren't a lot of tenements here. If you go up to Glasgow, this is a much more common housing feature. You get flats on each floor, two flats to a floor, a different way of housing the working classes in 1901. But then directly across the street from the tenements, we have the beginning of Chicksand Estate. The buildings we're looking at now, these five-storey brick flats, are the 1930s version of it. Already at the end of the street, glancing left, we can see something very different that comes along after the war. In the distance, we can see a tower block which anchors the estate as a whole. This tells us the story of social housing, in other words, over the course of the 20th century, from tenements in 1901 to the beginning of slum clearance by the council in the 1930s to the post-war continuation of that. So we're walking down the street towards the tower block in the distance. When we reach the end of this short street, though, we're going to turn left. So we turned left at the end of Chicksand Street. We're walking up Greater X Street. We've got the 1930s blocks on our left. We've got the 1960s blocks on our right. The 1960s blocks, in fact, managed to sweep away a warren of small streets, including four synagogues. We've seen it in a previous walk. Again, this is 1960s mixed development by the London County Council. There's a 19-storey tower block. There are six-storey maisonettes. Inside the estate, there's gentler landscaping. There are lower rise buildings but in 2019 in fact this estate the 60s blocks we're looking at now on our right are used to illustrate a guardian story about gentrification 15 years earlier back in 2004 55% of the neighborhoods in the borough were among the 10% most deprived in the country then in 2019 it was just 1.4 we're turning right at the end of Greater X Street and then we're going to turn left again onto Deal Street, which you can see in front of you. We're turning left on Deal Street. We're leaving behind the 1960s blocks. We're turning left in front of the precious kids' day nursery. Didn't start life as a day nursery. It started life as a board school in 1895. If we look up, we see a pediment. And if we looked at the motto there, we would see, Lux mihi laus, light is my glory, an attempt to bring education to the East End. We're now walking up Deal Street towards the next crossing. So we're passing, obviously, what was once a warehouse on our right, no longer. We're crossing Woodseer Street, and immediately on both right and left, we can see some small, rather picturesque cottages. We've got Victoria Cottages on our right, Albert Cottages on our left. 
This is the beginning of the housing story. In 1948, the Metropolitan Association for Improving the Dwellings of the Industrious Classes starts building these up. The first thing it builds is a lodging house for single men. Then it provides some family dwellings, now demolished. And then, a few years later, in 1857, for Victoria, in 1865, for Albert, it completes things with what we see today. So we've seen the whole history of the rehousing, if you like, of the working classes, philanthropic efforts in the middle of the 19th century giving way to local authority-driven efforts in the early 20th century and the post-war period. The housing varies over time, the impulse remains, there is never enough space provided for everybody who wants to live here. Keep going up Deal Street, at the end we can see some green space, that's what we're aiming for. As we come up Deal Street, more signs of more communities who've been here. On our left, we have St. Anne's. It's now associated with a Brazilian Catholic chaplaincy, a new addition to the neighbourhood. Ahead of us, we have Weaver's Gardens. There's also a primary school here affiliated to the church. We're going to turn left on Buxton Street. So as we come to the end of Deal Street, we can begin to see ahead of us Spitalfield City Farm, a place for kids in the neighbourhood to realise that there is a countryside to be embraced. At the end of Deal Street, we're turning left. We're not going into the city farm, tempting though it is. We're walking a little bit up Buxton Street, and then we're going to turn right into Allen Gardens. So just past the city farm, we're turning right and we can immediately begin to see the open space of Allen Gardens, kids playing, and suddenly an explosion of street art. An explosion of street art, not just in form, but also in colour. We've got pinks, we've got orange, we've got blue, we've got the whole spectrum here. Ahead of us, you can hear, we've also got trains, which is one explanation for why this space exists. We're following the path all the way through the gardens, staying on the concrete so we can see this up and close. Meanwhile, on the right, we've got the city farm with sunflowers in full bloom. As the path turns round and we start walking down past the train tracks, we see that the street art continues. Of course, street art is not quite street art anymore. It's a thriving global industry. We have curators, we have intermediaries, we have people inviting, say, a Brazilian street artist to come to London and paint on a wall, which the owner has allowed us to do. It remains an art of the public, though. You may pay someone quite a lot of money to produce a wall, but the next day it will be tagged. We can see that mix here. We're continuing to follow the path through the gardens. We've got some artists beginning to pull out cans of spray paint and decorating the walls under the railway bridge to our right. Continue to walk straight ahead, aiming for the alleyway you can see straight in front of you. We're coming out of the park into the alleyway. We can see even the trees around here have been tagged. At the end of the alleyway, turn right. We'll be back on Brick Lane.
Back on Brick Lane now, we can see the street stretches up and we're walking towards its end. Overhead, we can see the concrete box on the left, Shoreditch High Street Station, opened in 2010 on the site of originally an 1840 station, reconnecting the neighbourhood to the city. We're now a little bit further up. On our left, we've got Slater Street. Originally, again, some of these late 18th century buildings in the 19th, 20th century, this was a live bird market. Up above, you can see you've got weavers' tenements. A little further on now, this is the site of an infamous hipster hangout in the 2010s, the Serial Killer Cafe, a bowl of cereal, sugar pops or the like for five quid a pop, and got hit by protests in 2015 as people began to mobilise against gentrification. Maybe it was the wrong target, maybe it's not to small-time entrepreneurs, maybe it's the market forces, the people who make the decisions that make such a business possible. And near the end of Brick Lane, on our left, two bagel shops, or bagel shops, B-E-I-G-E-L, if you're an American listener, with a new crosstown donut shop between them. It's tempting to think that this, too, tells you something about the layers of the street. It does, in part. The bagel shop on the left, with the red frontage, founded, as you can see, in 1855. On the right, though, only in 1974. Heritage is mixed up on Brick Lane. At the top of the road, turn left. Cross the road, we're going to be going down Red Church Street. We've crossed the busy road, Bethnal Green Road. We're walking down Red Church Street now. On the right of Red Church Street, a series of buildings. It gives you a good sense of the scale of things here in the 19th century, though things have changed. And then on our left, you'll see a sign for Rich Mix. This is an important cultural centre. It used to be a leather factory. It's now a charity. It's an art centre. They do great work. In 2019 and 20 alone, they worked with 3,500 artists. 60% of them were black and minority ethnic. It really is an important place in the East End. We're continuing down Red Church Street a little while. We're going to be turning right on Club Row. We're just about to turn right on Club Row. We can tell walking down Red Church Street, this is now very much a centre of design, a centre of fashion, part of the Shoreditch design triangle. We'll hear more about Shoreditch in a minute. Here on the corner, the corner of Red Church Street and Club Row, we've got two Huguenot workers' houses. We've heard about the Huguenots before. They were saved from demolition in 2019. They're now occupied by a magazine and a design studio. And so now, as we walk up Club Row, there's a little early 21st century house on our right next to a 19th century warehouse. But as we move beyond that, we can see that things get much more consistent. We've got tall red brick buildings. We're continuing up Club Row. We're aiming for the mound in the middle, and we're going to climb the steps so we can see the whole thing laid out. So here we are on top of the mound. 
Next to what is in fact a bandstand, we're in Arnold Circus, the centre of this complex estate of red brick buildings. By the 20th century, it's not just wealthy philanthropists, but the city itself has begun to provide housing for its citizens. And that story starts here, on what used to be the eastern edge of Bethnal Green. To understand why, though, we need to know what was here before. It's a familiar pattern. We've heard it before. Until the 18th century, Bethnal Green is just a hamlet. It's further east, in fact. The centre, the historical centre, is a little bit down the road. There are fields between it and the city. And then, the story we know already, there's an influx of poor weavers. More and more people coming into an industry that's in decline. There's rapid build-up of Bethnal Green in the 19th century. Already in the 1820s, there's some speculative development further east to accommodate this swelling labour force. By 1851, there are 85,000 people in this space. And Bethnal Green is the definitive slum. It's worse than Whitechapel. And where we are now is its epicentre, although it didn't look like this. It was known as the Old Nickel. And here's the vicar of the church, just on the edge of this slum, now estate. He's describing his parish in 1844, and he's cited by Engels, again, writing on the condition of the working class in England. 1,400 houses inhabited by 2,795 families, comprising a population of 12,000. The space within which this large amount of population are living is less than 400 yards square, 1,200 feet, and is no uncommon thing for a man and his wife with four or five children, and sometimes the grandfather or grandmother, to be found living in a room from 10 to 12 feet square, and which serves them for eating and working in. I believe that till the Bishop of London called the attention of the public to the state of Bethnal Green, about as little is known at the west end of the town of this most destitute parish as the wilds of Australia or the islands of the South Seas. But it gets worse. The people who rule the neighbourhood are members of the vestry, the vestry of the local church. They're the elite, but they're also the property owners and they have no interest in improving things. They're doing very nicely, thank you, from the rents they're collecting, albeit at very low rates. Finally, in 1886, a new vicar arrives. The death rate at that point in the slum is twice as much in Bethnal Green more generally, four times as much as London. He persuades a novelist, Arthur Morrison, to visit the slum, and Morrison publishes a fictionalised account, The Child of Jago, in 1896. The narrow streets were, quote, all the blacker for the lurid air. Below the hot, heavy air lay a rank oppression on the contorted forms of those who made for sleep on the pavement, and in it and through it all there rose from the foul earth and grimed walls a close, mingled stink. That's Morrison in 1896. But things were already changing by the time the book comes out. There had been earlier attempts, earlier private attempts in the 1860s to clear the slums, to create tenements in Shoreditch, a little bit to our west and further east in Bethnal Green. Again, this is guaranteed return on investment for the people ponying up the funds. But then in 1888, Parliament creates the London County Council. And in 1890, it passes the Housing of the Working Classes Act. With those powers, the new council, the London County Council, decides to build this estate, a 15-acre boundary estate. 
It displaces nearly 6,000 people. They demolish 730 houses and 12 pubs. And what we have now is what they built. At the middle of it, you have Arnold Circus here, where we're sitting. It's built from the soil of the slum, which is piled up here. There are broad streets, which you can see radiating out from this central circle. There are 23 blocks. Each of them has between 10 and 85 tenements, a total of 1,069 dwellings to accommodate 5,500 people. There's a laundry. There are 18 shops. There are 77 workshops. There are two schools. There are no pubs, though. In other words, the people who occupy the estate are not the people who were displaced. The people who live here are respectable working classes. It includes clerks, it includes nurses. They are able to pay the increased rents. So the boundary estate is built. It doesn't solve the problem, though. The problem is too big to be solved by one estate. There are continuing efforts piecemeal between the wars. Bethnal Green is still overcrowded. Still in 1938, there are, quote, widespread squalor, ill health and poverty. And then Bethnal Green gets hit heavily by bombing during the war. And there's a drop in the population hereabouts thereafter. But this space, the space of Boundary Estate, remains a slightly liminal space almost to the end of the century. A wonderful filmmaker, Patrick Keeler, in the 1990s produces a series of quasi-documentaries. The first of them, called London in 1994, is a document of the city just when things are beginning to change in the wake of Margaret Thatcher when gentrification is hitting. And this spot, Arnold Circus, becomes one of those places he lingers on. Well worth a look. Things have changed a great deal. Industrial buildings have been turned into flats and offices. The creatives have poured in. We have technology to the east. Silicon Roundabout isn't too far away. Just to the south, there's tall corporate stuff for financial professionals on the edge of the city. But still maybe right here in Arnold Circus, there's a bit of a cause for hope. In 2006, the council proposed that the estate should be transferred to a housing association so that accommodation could be upgraded, and the tenants rejected it by a ballot. So nowadays, some of these flats are available on the open market. If you're interested, it's 600,000 for 800 square feet, a two-bed. But most of them are still council-owned. Changes are clear. The school in the southeast corner is now studios. There's a restaurant in the bike shed. The workshops on the other side of the circus are now a primary school. But the estate still more or less conforms to its initial prescription. To see places where that isn't the case, we have to move on. We're going to come down off the mound now. We're going to exit the estate through Calvert Avenue in the northwest corner. We're walking down Calvert Avenue. We have very cute little shops on our right. We have a community laundry on our left. We're coming to the end of the street and we begin to see a churchyard and we're going to go into that. It's on our right. So 
So we've crossed this little road, we're going into the churchyard now and we're curling round to the right of the church. And as we do, we can see more busy roads opening up ahead of us. We're now in St. Leonard's Shoreditch. What Shoreditch? It's right next to a main road, the main road straight in front of us, just to the west. Originally, it's a Roman road to the north. It passed through some boggy land on its way out of town. Then quite early in the medieval period, there's a priory here with a handful of nuns and novices. The monasteries go away, of course. Henry VIII doesn't like them when he's trying to set up a new religion. And so theatre comes to the neighbourhood. The cities ban theatre within the walls, and so the first theatres in London are set up here in the 1570s. They're here until the 1620s. Indeed, William Shakespeare's early plays are staged here, Romeo and Juliet, Henry V, and so on. When he moves to the globe south of the river, he uses the timber from one of them to set up his new gaff. Still in the 19th and 20th century, the area around here in Shoreditch is known for theatres and music halls. But going back a bit again, it's reasonably prosperous for a little while. In the 17th century, there are wealthy traders, there are silk weavers. We've heard these stories before. The church to our left now is rebuilt early in the 18th century in a grand Palladian style. The steeple mimics St. Mary Le Beau. We've already met that church in our earlier walk, A Tale of Two Cities. Both of them feature in the nursery rhyme, of course. Here it's about growing rich, say the bells of Shoreditch. But come the end of the 18th century, you've heard it before, there's growing poverty. The church sets up a workhouse. The 19th century, the population is increasing. The timber industry arrives. Furniture, therefore, also sets up shop. The middle classes begin to move out, and the population skyrockets. In the middle of the 18th century, there are 10,000 in Shoreditch. By 1851, there are 109,000. Looking across the street, we can see some of what's going in. Wells and Company ironworks across the street. Very elaborate, probably more a showroom. It might have been a workshop as well. An architectural historian calls this mosaic decoration in the Islamic style, a classic late Victorian mashup. But it takes a long time for Shoreditch to pick back up. It's happening by the end of the 20th century, but early in the 21st century, the church to our left is a great setting for Rev, a series about a Church of England vicar down on his heels. Also for Luther in 2011, the grime persists. So we're going to leave the churchyard now. We're going to cross this busy intersection of four main roads. We're going to go diagonally across the street and then start walking towards the railway bridge. So we're walking down Old Street now, we're walking under the railway bridge, it's a busy road we're on. There's a bike shed just across the road and the bikers are in town. And we're passing between two rather striking buildings. On our left we've got the town hall, built in two stages. The eastern part, the one closest to us now, is in a kind of Italianesque style, this is the 1860s. Then the western extension, even grander in the 1890s, you've got figures of light and power and an inscription, more 
more light, more power. This is municipal pride at its best at the end of the Victorian era. And then on our side of the street, facing opposite, slightly later, you've got a police station, much more sober, much more Renaissance, if you like. Neither of them, of course, continue in the purposes for which they were first designed. The town hall is a performance space. There's a restaurant in there for a while. It had a couple of Michelin stars. The police station, meanwhile, a few years ago, got turned into yet another luxury hotel. We're going to keep going straight ahead and find our way into Hoxton Square. So we've made our way off Old Street. We're now in Hoxton Square. We've got the square itself in front of us. I'm looking at two stick figures erected in the middle of it, surrounded by a jumble of buildings. We're not really in the East End anymore, but Hoxton too forms part of the story. It's a useful place to think about the emergence, the fall, the rise of the communities we've been seeing throughout the walk of the stories that have been obscured with recent development. Hoxton is often difficult to disentangle from Shoreditch. They're cheek by jowl. Sometimes Hoxton is part of Shoreditch. Originally, though, they are distinct. Hoxton is another rural hamlet. It's linked to the city by causeways across marshy land. It becomes fashionable in the 16th and 17th centuries as a place to get some country air. And by the end of the 17th century, the original estates are being broken up. You're beginning to get schools, hospitals and asylums, almshouses. And you get Hoxton Square. It's laid out in 1683. In fact, it's one of the first wave of squares in London. It belongs in the same generation as Soho Square and St. James's. If you know those squares, you'll notice that they've taken very different paths since then. Still, there's a little smidgen of that remaining I'm looking into the square, and on my right I can see a lower house. It's actually number 32. It's a recreation of a late 17th century house. It's not original. But again, most of the square is a product of the 19th century. It gives us a sense of the transformation that was wrought when rail came to town. The wealthy moved further out. They could afford to live at a distance. Industry moved in. At the top end of the square, there's a church. That's St. Monica's Catholic Church. It's an Augustinian priory built by a great Victorian architect, Augustus Pugin, and it looks the part. But really, the story of Hoxton is a very recent story indeed. Small industries around here, you can see some of the warehouses in front of us, moved out after the war. In the early 80s, these industrial buildings get taken over by young artists. In the 90s, office and retail gives way to exhibitions, clubs and raves. You can begin to hear the music starting up right now. And the square becomes the epicentre for young, hipster London nightlife. The real icon of this is behind us on the south side of the square, this brick building surmounted by a glass box. This was the White Cube. It was a gallery. It moved here from St. James's, a same-generation square, a much ritzier, more expensive place, and it came here because this was close to the artistic epicentre of town. Here's Ian Sinclair. 
the great chronicler of recent developments in London, who captured the moment of the White Cube's arrival in an article for the London Review of Books. He starts with Gilbert and George, the most famous artistic denizens of the East End. He calls them overdressed, like posh herdsmen who have lost their reindeer, on their way to their new gallery, this one, the White Cube. He points out that the White Cube makes art easily consumable. You don't need, really, to go inside to see what's happening. It's enough to catch it at a glance. But the backstory is more complicated. Shoreditch dragged comfortably through a few centuries living down to its name. A diesel tourniquet, a ha-ha filled with refuse, sawdust from repro furniture workshops, casual prostitution, single shoes exhibited on Sunday pavements, Italian rip-offs wholesaled in the week, black-windowed caves punting Elvis memorabilia, pubs touting exotic lunchtime entertainment while boasting that Bill Shakespeare had been a regular. Hoxton and Shoreditch were on the wrong side of the Roman Wall, a dog-end territory of street markets and unlicensed boxes. The 1990s had seen the area, birthplace of Lenny the Governor Maclean, the Cray twins et al, mutate from a criminous warren twinned with the Jago to a user-friendly film location, the sort of place Neil Jordan could shoot the crying game without paying protection money. A million ghosted memoirs, Golden-hearted mum, dad on the trot from the army, thieving from bomb sites, clip round the ear from PC plod, Borstal, Parkhurst, kneecapped by Ronnie, joins firm, TV anecdotes, celebrity pallbearer, shakes hand with Vinnie Jones, had done their job, turning poverty fables into designer villainy. Now, with ever-increasing speed, the memory traces of market gardens, madhouses, priories, holy wells, 19th century radicalism, are being wiped out by the new hip. Soho, loft living, sofa bar, circus school, art scam makeover. But the White Cube didn't stay here. In the year of the Olympics in 2012, it moved out, it moved south of the river, and the developers began moving in. Art is elsewhere now. This has been taken over by more capital, more investment, more transitory populations who won't stay for long. Not too far away, though, if we were to walk north just a little bit, we would see evidence of the earlier history of Hoxton, which ties it to that of the East End. The story of the East End is complicated, therefore. It is, of course, the story of capital, first arriving via the river, then transforming the land, as we saw in our first walk. Over time, it generates the surplus that gets spent on the fine art and property investment we're seeing here in Hoxton Square. But it's also the story of labour, pushed out of its homelands, pulled here by the promise of work. We saw this in the second walk, only then to be subjected to the discipline of the market, as well as the contempt of those who were here earlier. Occasionally, it's offered a helping hand, if only to go away. Above all, as we've seen in this walk, it's the story of the communities who came together in these spaces through faith and more to build their homes. In places like Hoxton Square, where capital flows, where people move, it can be hard to see this. Not too far away, though, the East End continues to work. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Jelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.